0: The average American car buyer now spends about 12 hours researching the purchase. They go to Edmunds.com, Autotrader.com. They find out the wholesale price that the dealer is getting, and they only spend a total of about three and a half hours in dealerships themselves. Yet, about 98.6% of cars are still bought through dealers, not online. Now, does this mean that the internet and that information is irrelevant? Does it mean that it's destroying dealerships? It doesn't mean it's destroying dealerships, but it clearly has changed buying. People walk into a dealer already having product and price information.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Frank Cespedes. Frank's a senior lecturer at the Harvard Business School and the author of an excellent book titled Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Change is a constant subject of conversation in the sales ecosystem, but what are these changes? Well, in this repeat episode from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, Frank and I talk about what some of these changes are, including some that are hugely important to buyers, but not terribly visible to sellers. Or perhaps that sellers are so entrenched in their old ways, they're blind to some of the important changes that impact how they should sell. As Frank and I dig into these, he sounds a cautionary note that we explore, which is that the conventional wisdom, including stuff you and I read online on LinkedIn, is misleading about the impact of these changes. So we get into that we also dive into one of my favorite topics, sales productivity. I love talking about this subject with someone who, with an academic grounding, because the question is, are salespeople today, who are the beneficiaries of tremendous technological advantages, are they selling more? I mean, are they any more productive than previous generations of sellers? And if not, what does that mean? Well, we get into this and much, much more, but before we get to Frank, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Frank,
0: welcome back to the show. Andy, very, very good to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me back.
1: Well, glad it's been way too long. Uh, We shouldn't wait till we have a new book come out.
0: Well, yes, that's true. On the other hand, we can do this two or three times about the new book. It's all right. That's true.
1: Well, I think we will do that because there's so much to cover. It's such a good book. Uh, called sales management that works, and uh, <laughs> the theme of the book is really starts with change, and I think that this is certainly an appropriate topic for sales, which is all about change. But, but you say that sales is changing. But before we get into the details of of that, as I have sort of made a broader question, a framing question for you, and and this is, in your opinion, because I haven't seen any data on this, is are sellers today more or less productive than sellers in previous decades? Meaning, and I yeah, I sort of use this measure of dollars of revenue generated per hour of selling time as sort of a, a metric, but mm-hmm. you know, my, my sense is, and I ask this question a lot, is, is even despite sort of being in this quote-unquote golden age of sales technology and marketing technology, there's a sense that sellers are less productive today than they were before. And I was wondering if you had a sense about that. In yeah,
0: yeah. And and I can also uh, cite some data, but it's, you, you know, now I'm putting my academic hat on for a second right. uh, over my bald head, uh, Andy. <laughs> but um, it, let me just say it's circumstantial evidence, but right. it all tends in the direction that supports your point of view. Uh, yeah, look, selling is obviously a very, very diverse activity. Uh, selling uh, software is different than selling capital goods. Selling enterprise software is different than selling SaaS, etc. But this is what the data says. If you erase all of that uh, heterogeneity, right? Uh, first, there is the uh, uh, the anecdotal data that you get again and again across industries about the dwindling percentage of reps that make quota, right? So that's that's number one. Um, Number two is, um, I think, a bit more um, uh, interesting data. But if you look at the cost structures of um, the Fortune 1000 companies uh, globally over the last 15 years, the reality is that those companies, out of necessity, the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, now the pandemic, but those companies have actually done a very, very good job managing their costs and their productivity for what you might call back office functions, you know, shared mm-hmm. services, et cetera. On the other hand, SG&A, and especially the S part, the selling <laughs> part, right? That has increased dramatically as a percentage of companies' uh, total costs. Uh, and then the third thing is the data about what percentage of time salespeople actually spend in customer contact. And by customer contact, I don't just mean you know showing up at someone's office or doing it via Zoom. I mean all customer contact through phone, emails, etc. And in most sales forces, that number is about 30 to 35 percent. In right. other words, you know, 70 plus percent of the time is not spent doing what a salesperson's hired to do. Again, that, that all of those items are going to change and and differ fairly significantly across company and industry. But in the aggregate, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to support uh, your instincts about this.
1: Yeah, and I it was it was further triggered by an article I'd seen that Paul Krugman had published in the New York Times last fall talking about rate of productivity growth in the US economy and saying it's you know basically flat in the 2000s, this century. And but when you looked at his charts, sort or of the inference of productivity growth really since I guess it was the 70s, is that productivity growth basically was driven by <laughs> Uh, personal computer, email, and the internet and broadband. And beyond that, things, it's like we've sort of milked the, the productivity gains out of those and now we're sort of flat. And so all this technology we're adding to on top of sales isn't making a difference.
0: Well, you know, uh, that's actually, I discussed that actually in the uh, last chapter of the book that uh, we're talking about here. And first, uh, Krugman's right about. The, the basic facts. The, and and most economists, I think, uh, know this, and that is that there has been a flattening and indeed a decline in uh, productivity, not only in the United States, but in uh, most other uh, industrialized countries for the last 20 to 30 years. What is more of a mystery, however, is why that's the case. And right. the best evidence About This points, I think, to two factors, and one of them is definitely going to be relevant to sales. But the two main factors here seem to be first demographics, declining birth rates. And then the second one is the shift in most uh, industrialized economies over the last half century from manufacturing to predominantly services dominated economies. The U.S. is a good example of that. Sure. This is why the pandemic has been such a, such a catastrophe. Uh, about 75% of our GDP is in service businesses. <laughs> now, Peter Drucker, you know, the great Peter oh, yeah. Drucker. I mentioned Peter Drucker to my MBA students last semester, and it was like I mentioned Julius Caesar. You know, <laughs> you, you don't go into business to be famous. But, you know, Peter Drucker was yeah. one smart guy. Absolutely. And he wrote an article 30 years ago. 30 years ago, he wrote an article in Harvard Business Review about the crisis of services productivity. And he pointed to sales and salespeople as a good example. And 30 years ago, Peter Drucker said what you said. He said, look at how much time salespeople spend essentially with computers. And he said, that's not productivity. That kills Productivity, and Drucker said that if uh, these societies don't deal with this productivity, services productivity issue, we can expect uh, political uh, problems uh, and class warfare. Sounds pretty prophetic to it me. Does, doesn't so, it does, yeah. Uh, it's a big issue, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why, in the book, I I basically emphasize that this book about sales is not simply about increasing shareholder value. Although it is, and I don't think companies uh, should apologize for that, but it is also a social responsibility of management because it affects economic growth, opportunity, and the way societies operate.
1: Yeah, I mean, we and you and I were sort of touching this a little bit before we started recording, which we probably should have recorded that part. But it's it's I think you see this, and you talk about this in the book with the high turnover rates in sales. Uh, I think you cite you know twenty to thirty percent per year is you know people are searching for something right something better and I don't think it's driven by uh, you know trying to find a company with better product market fit or something like that I, I'm sure in some cases it is but I think it's I don't know it's it's like they have a vision of what sales is supposed to be like and they they're trying to find that.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think there are you know one of the reasons for that, and and um, again, it's it's one of the themes in the book. But it's really really for me, I had two major motivations in writing this book, and and the first one is directly relevant to what you're saying, Andy, uh, and it's something that sort of puzzled and bothered me throughout my career. Of all the various functions in business you know, sourcing, production, operations, etc., sales and selling are by far the most Mm -hmm. context-specific. Selling in North America is different than selling in Asia, different than selling in the Middle East, uh, etc., etc. Yet, of all the business functions, for some reason, sales is that area where many people Including uh, business people, feel comfortable making these huge a priori generalizations that, in my opinion, are not only vacuous and not supported by the data, but also generate the stereotypical assumptions that you're pointing to. And I think that's—I think that is one of the um, uh, the reasons that we see that poor ROI. Uh, in training. And then I think there are other reasons that are simply built in to this function. There are inherent challenges in hiring, training, and developing salespeople.
1: Yeah. And I we're definitely going to get into those because I think that's, you know, it's some of the most popular uh, or most engaged posts that I I post these days, which get huge engagement around hiring. And yeah, I mean, it definitely could be done better. So I, I do want to. Get into that. another point I wanted to ask though is because you know you come from a more academic perspective on on this whole issue and you you talk about this idea you just mentioned the conventional wisdom about the impact of these changes on sales is misleading. Isn't that sort of an issue though? You say it's context-specific, but isn't that one of the really issues with sales is there is no I don't know good data? I mean rigorous data uh it seems like so much of the re- research we see about sales is you know self-reported results I and mean, we don't really have like the equivalent of like a rigorous double-blind study that you might see in a pharmaceutical clinical trial mm. to measure the effectiveness of anything in sales.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, uh th- what you just said is true of a lot of other areas of business. I mean, you know, uh this is one of the reasons why Uh, A lot of business people, I think, quite legitimately have reservations about, you know, Professor X or theorist Y. When you're doing uh, research and gathering data in business, that's qualitatively different than doing research, you know, for some peer-reviewed statistically significant paper in a journal or doing double-blind research uh, to make sure the vaccine works in a clinical trial what you're doing in business is you have to do that research, interpret it, and make changes while the boat is under full sail in an ocean where you do not control the weather. Right. So if, in fact, we evaluate the data, if what we mean by good data is what we mean in a clinical trial, that, that rarely exists, and not only in sales. But that doesn't mean we don't have data that's useful for decision making and continuous improvement purposes. You know, it's a little bit like sure. air pollution. Uh, you can get rid of eighty percent of it um, uh, one way, and then that final twenty percent costs a heck of a lot. Right. So you know, I I, I don't think um, I don't think absence of data is uh, is an excuse not to get better and better at this core business activity. And in fact, I think a lot of talk about so-called big data, I don't know about you, but I've been hearing that all my career, right? <laughs> yeah. 35 yeah. years ago, I was hearing about data, big data. It's only gotten bigger. I, I think for many uh, uh, executives, that's a convenient excuse and naive because the assumption very often in that talk is that somehow the data will speak for itself, no, it's not. Managers have to manage. What does this data tell us about who is our customer, who isn't? How do we segment? What does that mean for hiring, training, performance reviews, relevant metrics, etc.? Uh, you know, again, I'll quote uh, Peter Drucker. Drucker wrote a great article about 50 years ago um, called "The Manager and the Moron." By the way, Andy, <laughs> can you still hear me? My computer... Uh, yeah, dis- no, I can, can hear you. I can hear you. Uh, the moron was the computer, and the manager was the person responsible for asking the right questions of the computer. Uh, I think that's still true, even if you've got allegedly self-correcting algorithms, as some people say they have, in uh, machine learning.
1: Right. Well, I think this this does bring a, a critical, to a critical point about sales, which is... That, yeah, we don't know how to use this data, to your point, uh, make good decisions about it. Um, that, you know, people see correlations where correlations don't exist, or cause and effect where cause and effect doesn't exist. And it seems like that was one area where, starting with sales managers and sales leadership, would be really important to get more instruction, more training to them so that. Yeah, and this is a, a societal issue, right? We're, we're all, not all, but people just aren't trained how to read data. And we draw the wrong conclusions from it.
0: Yeah, but but I think in sales in particular, um, you know, again, I, uh, let me quote something that uh, you and I were talking about before the podcast began. Uh, you know, Billy Bean, the uh, general manager of the Oakland Athletics, yep, sort of yep. the, uh, the godfather of data uh, analytics in, in yeah. sports. Yeah. Sabermetrics, et cetera. Bean always makes, a, I think, a very fundamental point. And his point is, look, there's always been a lot of data in baseball in particular, you know, going back to 19th century box scores, lots right. of this data. The issue is not, can you get the data? The issue is, do you have good questions to ask about the data. And right. I think that's particularly true in sales. For example, with sales managers, I don't think the most important thing for them is to go to a statistics course so they understand the difference between, you know, an r square of .9 and a sp- spurious correlation, although that occasionally helps. The real important thing is do they understand buying in their target markets and do they understand what that means? for cause and effect links in what it is they're doing when they organize, deploy, and provide incentives for sales. Then the data can help. But if you if you lack those priors, uh, you know, all you're doing is what a lot of big data people do. You know, with any database of sufficient magnitude, of course you're going to find st- uh, statistically significant correlations. That's just the math. But most of them are just going to be plain silly.
1: Yeah. Well, and I agree with you 100%. It's all about asking questions. That's really what, the point I was trying to make. Ask, learning how to ask questions of the data is uh, there's a simple little book I had a, a guest on uh, wrote called Every Data. Uh, John, James Johnson wrote it, uh, or John Johnson, I think, about just how we, we just aren't able really to interpret data and ask the questions of the data, and since your point is, you know, we're having more and more of that available to sales leadership and sellers themselves. If they don't know how to interrogate it, then can you use it effectively?
0: Yeah, you know, I I, the, the, I was talking to uh, this company will remain nameless. It's out in your neck of the woods. Uh, one of the famous high tech firms. And one of the senior executives there, and his point was a lot of this is, in effect, done for external, call it what you want, public relations, marketing purposes. He said, but look, here's the way it works, Frank. When I am talking to potential investors, I say what we do is artificial intelligence, and when I am talking to um, my IT people, I tell them your job is to to develop the right algorithms. And when I'm talking to my managers, all I ever talk about is correlations. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's different ways of spinning this. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: let's let's jump into the book again. So uh, one thing I really liked is <clears throat> sort of tackling this chasm that exists increasingly between sort of the sales process and the buying process. And so you've laid out this idea of streams as opposed to a funnel. And take us through that.
0: Well, I mean, you know, the basic point is that while a lot of what we've just finished talking about, you know, the, uh, uh, the um, information revolution. Think of it that way. The, the, the easy availability of, uh, of data uh, in the 21st century, while a lot of that uh, can impede productivity, there's no doubt that it has affected buying in both B2B and B2C uh, markets. I mean, you know, my favorite example of this, and it sort of illustrates the difference in buying, one of my favorite examples of this is buying a car. Right? Right. Um, you know, uh, the vast majority of cars, both before and interestingly during the pandemic, the vast majority of cars are still bought in dealerships. But this is what the JD Power uh, data tells you the average American bo- uh, car buyer now spends about 12 hours researching the purchase. Uh, you know, they go to edmunds.com mm-hmm. or trader.com. Right. They find out the wholesale price that the dealer is getting, uh, the price for each um, uh, a feature or package, et cetera. And they only spend a total of about three and a half hours in dealerships themselves. Yet, 90, you know, your body temperature, about 98.6% <laughs> of cars are still bought through dealers, not online. Now, does this mean that the internet and that information is irrelevant? It doesn't mean that it's destroying dealerships. It doesn't mean it's destroying dealerships, but it clearly has changed buying. People walk into a dealer already having product and price information. And the days of the uh, salesperson there as kind of, you know, slick, walking, talking purveyor of discounts, Those days are gone. Buying a car in America is a much nicer experience now than it was 10 years ago, not because these people went to Bible school, but because of what information is done to the buyer. And the same is true in many, many, if not virtually all product categories, because of what you can now get on your cell phone because of what you can now get in B2B markets through power reviews or mm-hmm. you get all that information. So buyers don't just move through a funnel. They're online and offline in multiple at multiple points throughout their buying journeys. That's what I mean by the streams. And you are right. Most sales models have yet to catch up with that reality of buying, there is a big gap there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, my, I guess, my thoughts are crystallized when Gartner came out with their buyer, buyer enablement study back, I don't know, fall of eighteen, I think it was, and they show you know their famous spaghetti diagram flowchart of of yeah. the buying process, and and it was like, okay, huh. I've never talked to a single company <laughs> that's that's tried to mirror their sales process or align their sales process with this this process, which at its heart had four jobs the buyers were trying to accomplish, which are very similar to the streams that you yep. uh, that you define. And it's a messy recursive process, but it's like, yeah, sales is still thinking I've got this linear, staged-based. Process very neatly defined, and this is what the buyer is going through.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, you, you got to have a little empathy. I think there you got to understand why there's that gap, uh, despite the fact that now the technology is increasingly the seller's friend. The technology is increasingly it, making it easier uh, for the people who know what they want to do in sales to deal with these streams of both simultaneous. Offline and online buying. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of reasons for the gap, I think fairly systematic reasons. One is, you know, the um, the short term orientation in sales. So, you know, I always quote uh, at Harvard Business School, where I teach, you know, we, we write case studies. I'm very grateful that I've had to do that uh, throughout my career. I always remember one of the executives in sales that I interviewed for uh, one of the very first cases I wrote. And, he, you know, I was asking him questions, and I probably smelled like an academic at that point in my career. And he said, now, <laughs> let me tell you something, Frank. In my line of work, you know, because I was talking about the long term, he said, in my line of work, if you don't survive the short term, you don't have to worry about the long term. Right. right? That's why change is always difficult in sales. And, by the way, that's why sales is always, always a great place to look at technology adoption precisely because technology has to demonstrate its existential usefulness in sales in ways that it doesn't have as much pressure to do in other areas. So that's one reason. The other reason, and this one I think is changing, but um, I I have been involved. Yeah, I do a fair amount of work with companies around the world. I probably run as many strategy meetings As anybody, certainly as many as anybody at Harvard Business School. And I can't tell you in the last two decades how many meetings I've been in where we've got what I consider these fairly sterile academic debates about should we be online, should we be offline, you know, should we be selling through salespeople or through the website. And the answer in the twenty first century to that question is yes. Yes, you, right. You got to do both. That's a false dichotomy. I think that one's breaking down. I think the pandemic actually is has accelerated that breakdown. But then I think there's a a third reason. And um, again, this is something you and I touched briefly on before we started recording. But, you know, the C-suite, this is a big change that doesn't get enough attention, in my opinion. Uh, If you look at the composition of the uh, senior executive groups, the so-called C-suite of companies around the world, there's a wonderful study that was done by a colleague of mine just a few years ago. And what she found is that over the last 25 years, on average the number of executives reporting to the CEO has doubled, all right, twice mm-hmm. as much. But then if you ask yourself, who are these people? Where did they come from? What did they do before they became senior executives? Very few of them were had actually been general managers in the sense in which I think people like you and me use that term. A general manager, you know, someone running a line of business. Right, a division, or, right. you know, PL responsibility. Most of them were specialists. The CIO, the CMO, general counsel, head of data analytics, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why is that the case? You know, most, most companies don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's be siloed and uh, bureaucratic. The reason is that business has gotten more complex because of the data revolution. It's it's a full-time job to stay on top of what a CIO or a CMO, et cetera, needs. But the reality is that's the composition of the C-suite in more and more companies. And fewer people than ever before have made it to the C-suite with P&L experience and sales experience in particular. And I think that's another contributing factor to to the gap that you're putting your finger on. But having
1: identified it, and this gap being identified, is, you know, the Gartner study has been out for two plus years. I'm sure you've been talking about your four streams for a while. is like, again, I don't, I haven't had a single conversation with a sales executive, sales you know, leader, uh, to say, "Yeah, we've this gap is a problem," because I think it informs how they approach the customer, and and I think it's a contributor to you know sort of the, some of the trends we talked about in terms of sales sales performance, sales productivity is yeah the buyers sort of moved on and sales hasn't.
0: Well, I mean, you know, what you're what you're asking in some ways is, you know, well, okay how do we how do we close that gap? Am am I am I? Yeah. I I mean, you know, I I think, look, as with any gap, you you know, you got to You got to work both sides. All right. The uh, the uh, supply and the demand side. I think the key responsibility for sales managers is to make sure they understand how buying happens at their target accounts today, not yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The most important thing about selling is the buyer and the buying process. And then you ask yourself, this is also what sales managers have to do, what does this imply for the key sales tasks? In other words, what are, given the way buying works, what are the tasks where my people have to be great? And given the buying, where are the tasks where they just have to be good enough? Right? Because like any other manager, they've got to set priorities, they have to make trade-offs, etc. That's what they need to do to argue for the right resources so they can do hiring, training, development correctly. Then on the other side, uh, I don't think the answer to the C-suite gap is micromanaging, which I see going on a lot uh, with yes. data. Uh, I don't think that a CIO or uh, a COO or even the CEO, their job is not to be the best um, sales leader in the world. But their job is to understand what is, given the buying in their market, a relevant versus an irrelevant sales model. And then, as Billy Bean said, their job is to know what are the questions to ask. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think as with any gap, it there it takes two to tango, and uh, those are the areas where I think people need to uh, uh, pay attention and and work harder at.
1: Yeah. No. I think this gap is to me is is a huge huge is the place where the problem exists. Uh, now so I just want to go through and identify the four streams you talk about. The these are sort of parallel activities, parallel streams that buyers are going through, you call them explore, evaluate, engage, and experience. And I sort of, you know, summarize them as explore is to identify the problem, evaluate, explore options, engage. Well, uh, yeah, I know in the Gartner that's more of the finalize the requirements stage, but uh, and then experiences the formal buying decision.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. No, you you've got it right, and uh, your 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 revocation of that Gardner study is um, is exactly right because uh, I was actually involved with them when they did that study, and really, uh, what I've got here is a variation on that. And then the rest of the book is what I call the so what now what uh, right. questions. What does this mean for? core areas in sales management, like who you hire, what you do with them once you hire them, how do you conduct performance reviews, uh, what about pricing, channel management, etc. Right. Um, but the whole point of those streams is that they are streams. They're not linear sequential funnels because of uh, technology, but technology is simply an enabler uh, for right. this. So one when- one question
1: I have, and I'm interested in your take on this because, you know, when I looked at the Gartner study and and you know reading this part of the book where you describe the streams, it has sort of think about this in the context of my own experience and experiences selling large deals to large enterprises and so on. Is it is that I've always felt like it's sort of divided into sort of two the buying process always sort of divided into two steps. One is we've got a certain amount of motions that we go through to define how we're going to solve a problem. And then having decided how we're going to solve it, we choose who we're going to solve it with. And so I look at you know, sort of the explore, evaluate, engage stages, streams that you talk about as, yeah, fundamentally this is, look, we're going to define our problem, define the potential uh, outcomes that we can achieve by solving it. Uh, we're gonna go out and evaluate options in the market. We're gonna winnow that down as you talked about to a select number of options. We're gonna choose one of those those options, which may or may not be vendor specific. And then we're gonna choose a vendor, having solved the sort of the how problem, we're gonna choose a vendor to help us implement that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, no, that that's um I think that's a very good um Summary and analog uh, for what I'm uh, uh, saying about those streams, right? You know, now let's look at the other end. What does this mean for the selling? Um, you know, the way I think, yeah, was, the point, the, I
1: was, well, I was just going to say that's the point I was going to make is that I think that one of the f- fundamental problems that exists in sales is we train people to sell to solve the who, and not enough to solve the how.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the way I sort of phrase that, and, and I think, uh, I also think, by the way, there is a lever available, in my experience, to 99% of sales managers that they don't use appropriately to deal with this. But the distinction I always draw is between the buyer's motivation in that category, that purchasing process, and their perception of you, your company, your product. Mm -hmm. By and large, it is very difficult to change a buyer's motivation. That's called customer discovery. That's what it is we need to understand. But what is more malleable, and this is the art of salesmanship, is the perception. The perception of what it is that we do or don't do. The perception of the solution they are trying to solve, how to measure the uh, value outcomes, uh, et cetera, And a big part of that is framing. You know, that's one of the chapters in the book, and, and that is something one can work on. Now, the other, the other vehicle, I think, that's relevant here, Andy, and this, you know, gets us back to data and other things, but the way things work, especially with the big deals that, uh, you know, you were using in your experience and in this example, The most important data in situations like that is not aggregate data about an industry or a market. You know, a market has never bought anything. In the history of business, a market (laughs) has never bought a thing. Only specific accounts buy. So the most important data is usually only available to a sales manager by doing good account reviews with their reps, good performance reviews. And that's vital when when sales managers do what i call drive by reviews sloppy right. reviews they they they're not only in effect perpetuating a culture of underperformance they're inhibiting the flow of vital information that no database is going to give them because right. it's very very account specific Information, so you know that that's that's a lever that they need to use. And by the way, uh, and I learned this in the business I ran for twelve years, doing performance reviews, as opposed to you know just talking about compensation. That's a very trainable skill, and um, it's it's almost always well worth the investment.
1: Right. So. Let me ask another question about that. Is is so? Because one of the things you talk about is is understanding where the customer is in the pro in their process is central to effective selling. And I think that's a quote from it. And isn't that to me one of the real issues with this gap that exists? Is that sales manager they're doing their reviews and they're saying, "Well, where's the customer stand?" In their stand, and the seller tries to answer it by saying, "Well, we're at the discovery stage or the qualification stage," which has no relevance at all to what the buyer is actually going through.
0: Well, I mean, it may or may not have relevance, but it's you know, sort of, um, it's sort of a random walk, as they say on Wall Street. And by the way, I think um, y- you know, again, you got to ask yourself, why is this so prevalent? Why do you see it? Why do I see it? If you look at CRM software. Most CRM software is built on that sequential, linear, you know, uh, funnel, all the pipeline stuff that you hear about in 90% of uh, sales blogs. And what the software does is weight the probability of a sale, depending on where in that funnel, that set of funnel categories of the buyer is. But that's not the way people buy now, for the most no. part. That's not what, what the Gartner study or what I call explore, evaluate, etc. is about. So you've got a disconnect there as well in the data that not only sales managers are often looking at, but what their bosses are looking at.
1: <laughs> yeah, all connected, right? Yeah. Well, I wanted to jump into... <sighs> Talents and hiring, because again, it's it's. Mention, I think maybe when we were talking before the we'd start recording, it's just this seems to be a topic that people are are continually sort of struggling with. And I know it's it's something that's hard to perfect, but it seems to me like the processes we use to hire salespeople that I've I've seen. Maybe one company in my experience that that you know, actually had a system that sort of said, "Well, yeah, let's we're going to track data about the people we hire and then use that to educate ourselves about how to make better decisions with candidates in the future." And you describe a process, that in general, is fairly random in the way people hire.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think. Um... Yeah, You know, just two things about this topic, which is you're exactly right. It's a big topic. It all begins with people, especially in sales. Uh, buying and selling have always been social as well as economic uh, transactions. And for the most part you don't create a relationship with your computer, you know, unless you're different. <laughs> let's put it that way. Yes. But um, First, there are inherent challenges in sales hiring that Really don't exist in in some other areas. You know, uh, if you want to hire an engineer, you can go to an engineering school, and it's like a buffet. What are you looking for? Electrical engineering, chemical engineering. Uh, if you want to hire a, uh, an accountant or finance person, there are people that majored in those subjects. The same is true for uh, programmers, but that's not true in sales. Very very few schools have a you know, even have a sales course, right. let alone a sales program. So the vast, vast majority of people who go into sales go in almost totally unprepared, right? So yes. that that increases the difficulties of hiring. Then you get to the processes. And um, what I'm about, you know, the research I am about to cite is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear uh, in a management school. It's it's supported by now about almost 70 years of studies that consistently Mm -hmm. show the same results. The correlation between the uh, evaluations that people get in their interviews and their subsequent you know, on-the-job performance in most businesses is significantly less than 0.5. In other words, significantly (laughs) less than flipping a coin. And in fact, in service businesses, because that's a very people-intensive set of tasks, the correlation is around 0.2. Now, the interesting thing is that when I show this research to executives uh, their response is a classic example of the, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, right? <laughs> First there's denial. Oh, that's right. BS. You know, look, 70 years of research. I literally show them, you know, the uh, reviews. Then it's sort of uh, anger. Then it's what they call exceptionalism. In other words, this is probably true of you and that person. You do it differently. Yeah, I yeah. I somehow, I know how to peer into people's souls, Um, I have many colleagues who basically on the basis of these facts about interviewing say companies should abolish interviews. You know, in my opinion, only someone who's never managed a business can say that of (laughs) course you interview, right? People have to work with people. People have to manage people, especially in sales, but you have to augment those interviews with other processes and sales is fundamentally a performance art. Sales is about behavior. It's not about how well they interview. And what you need to do, and by the way, this is much more possible than many managers think it is. Whenever possible, you want to put in place, you know, some kind of process where you get a chance to actually observe behavior. It might be a three to six month trial period. Sure. It might be something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, those, I think, are the big issues uh, around uh, sales hiring. And I think, again, the pandemic uh, has thrown a lot of this into um, relief. A lot of companies during the pandemic, out of necessity, you know, essentially went back and said, all right, we got to make choices about who's a keeper and who's not. If, in fact, the recovery, and I hope I'm wrong about the recovery, I I think it's going to be tougher than what we're hearing, but if, in fact, we have a so-called V-shaped recovery, Mm -hmm. these hiring and talent issues, especially in business development functions, they're going to be paramount. The issue is not going to be technology. The issue is not going to be, hey, how do you run the Zoom meeting? The issue is going to be the people. Uh, So, you know, companies need to get better at this.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you have a statistic you cite in the book that fifty percent of U.S. college grads will work in sales at some point, maybe where they have business development responsibility, and that's not even including, you know, the seventy-five percent of or so of white-collar workers that Dan Pink identified as having responsibility for influence to get their job done. Um, yeah, that's that's a lot of a lot of folks. If there's a V-shaped recovery being put into what you talk about as these sort of unstructured interviewing processes where, you know, first impressions are so important and yeah, I love the money ball example you gave where the scouts, you know, would rank players higher because they were handsome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and I've seen that, yeah, I've had a client that yeah. you know, hired someone because he, he looked good in a suit. So, I mean, and yeah. what can I say?
0: Yeah, but you know, um, notice, um, but notice what's embedded though in in that data. You know, uh, you've got very, very few people who have even took take, taken a sales course in their entire educational career, right. and yet more than fifty percent are going to work in sales. The, the point is, it's on the job learning out of necessity, right. and this says something about what you do with people after you hire them. And it's important to understand how salespeople learn. And this, I think, points to um, why a lot of money in sales training uh, is wasted. But sales learning is a classic example of what the theorists in this area call modeling behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And we know this, we know the research. Research says you go to the training seminar. The rep forgets almost everything or at least 90% of what they learned within 90 days, one quarter. The way they learn is two ways. A, modeling behavior. Yep. They, they look, the motivated ones at least, look at what the best of their peers are doing. And they say, you know, that's clever. I hadn't thought about that way of uh, dealing with that objection or that way of framing the value proposition, etc. And then the other learning that's important, especially in sales, is just in time learning. In other words, getting me the information that I need when I need it, Mm -hmm. not weeks or months earlier in a training seminar. And here the technology is the seller's friend. There's more and more technology available, uh, some of which I talk about in the book, but more and more technology available that allows companies to provide that information when rap, reps will actually use it on their way to a sales call, or sometimes literally during the sales conversation.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so Ring DNA, that company that owns this podcast, is is you know, has introduced a product called Yoda AI, which is yep. in context when you're on a call, you're a seller. Um uh, somebody asks you a question and the system is listening, it hears the key words that might let's say they ask about a competitor, you know, it'll still say, Hey, here's here's a battle card for you on that competitor. It'll pop up on your screen. Click here yeah. to download it. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's happening. You know, that's that's out there now.
0: Yeah, you know, and by the way, um I I'd forgotten, I'd I would forgotten i i had not realized that um uh you know, ring is our uh, godfather here. But I'm not shy about this. You'll see in the book, I use some of their data and the data I I think that they have about what information is relevant when you're calling at level A versus level B is very, very illuminating. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly the kinds of things that, uh, that, that reps need. Uh, you know, having a sea level conversation—one of the perennial issues in sales—is qualitatively different than talking about product and specs with the gatekeepers to the exactly. yeah. Well,
1: and that's exactly right, and that's where that type of system can help in terms of being that you know omnipresent digital sales assistant uh, to help. Well, I want to get back to the hiring part because. Yeah, you, know, you sort of talk a little bit about a process in there, and I, I, you know, I, th- I think this is such a big thing because companies, as I said, are just all over the board, and I, I have examples of companies I've talked to. For instance, that from an interviewing standpoint is if you know companies love to bring people's candidates in and talk to multiple people, but when they do that now, these organizations they have, yeah, you know, everybody that talks to. Uh, that person, with the exception, I guess, maybe the hiring manager, asks the same questions in the same order. And so they then have the ability to get together afterwards. And when they debrief, they say, they can compare. How did this person answer this question? What do you think of that? And so they have a, a common context. Yep. And I was wondering if you have other things that you've seen that companies are doing that sort of help standardize the process or give more data points uh that they can then also look at me even retrospectively to you know improve the quality of, of hiring decisions they're making.
0: Yeah. And well I think you've pointed to one simple but very, very important and fundamental one. And that is precisely because we know that um the individual interview uh has very, very low predictive power. Uh we also know the uh the power of first impressions. Yes. Right. Um, The single most important thing you can do is make sure that you get multiple inputs, multiple independent separate inputs about the candidate. And that's exactly what you're pointing to. And what you're pointing out is that, listen, we we then can compare if we have some kind of standard protocol. We then can compare how so-and-so answered your question, what you thought, what you interpreted. And me. So that that's very important. You know, you're, you're going to laugh at this, but there's an exercise that I use in my MBA class, uh, have done for the last few years, uh, and it's a sales hiring exercise. Uh, the students, uh, and I literally bring in sales people for them to interview, mm-hmm. they get their LinkedIn pages beforehand, so they've got this information about them. And they've got to hire them for um, They're interviewing people for two positions in two different companies that earlier in the course we discussed in case studies. So they know something about the company, their strategy, the buying process, the tasks, et cetera. They go through this and then we debrief, right? They literally interview these people in the room this year via Zoom. And then we debrief with both the interviewees, the salespeople that they interviewed uh, and the students, and when I ask the students, "What did you think?" <laughs> the first thing they always say is, "Wow, people who sell for a living are really good at interviews." Huh? Who knew? Right? Who <laughs> knew? <That's> right? Well, <laughs> cool. yeah, I mean, of course. And but that's learning. You're not hiring uh, the uh, the interview version of the person. You're you're looking to um, uh, hire for behavior. And then the second thing that they always say, and I think this is relevant to managers, I always ask the students beforehand what they've got to hand in. This is, you know, the the preparation for the exercise. Here's what you're hiring for. Here's a person you've been assigned to interview. Tell me what it is you're looking to find out. And always, when you total up the responses, and I show this to the students, always near the top of the list Is something about their cultural fit, Mm. or their you know their quote motivation, and then down near the bottom of the list are things like their communication skills or experience. And what they learn when we do the debrief is that they're. I'm going to use a wonderful American phrase, Andy. They get it exactly bass backwards, as do most managers what you can learn in an interview is somebody's communication skills right are right. they mumblers are they not mumblers experience that's what a resume is about and you can explore that what is very difficult if not impossible to learn are the things at the top of their list right their motivation yep. etc and many managers i think simply commit the same mistakes that these relatively inexperienced MBA students do, and but at least they learn from it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe not, because I don't know. My my impression over the years, uh, not just my experience, but uh, you know, hiring people, but other people is that yeah, they tend to make the same mistakes.
0: Well, you know the old definition of insanity: right. doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result.
1: Well, I want to cover two things in the time we have left, real quickly. One is is I thought it really interesting is, um, you know, there's a lot of reliance in some in some companies on uh, personality assessments, and you know, I think okay, maybe nothing wrong with them as a data point, but I know companies that that sort of swear by them as sort of a Qualifier or disqualifier, and you wrote that the research behind these is not substantial that and I think there's a quote here from the book is research does not uh, shown has shown not shown that personality traits well I, I i didn't type it correctly, basically saying that personality tests don't correlate with selling selling performance
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: it, and yet there's still almost seems like an increasing reliance on these. I was wondering in your opinion what's the right place to use these or the right purpose to use a personality assessment.
0: Well, I mean, first you got to know what these assessments um are and are not good for, uh, what they were designed to do, then you got to understand how to use them as opposed to misuse them. And then thirdly, you ask yourself the question, why am I, you know, why am I doing this? I mean, most of the personality assessments in my experience, you know, Myers-Briggs would be a great example. Or DISC. Yeah. They they were never developed for hiring purposes. They they simply weren't developed for that reason. That's not their, that's not the diagnostics that they're aiming at. Secondly, with some of them, Myers-Briggs, a good example, uh, the diagnostics themselves are uh, very, very debatable. You know, as a number of people have pointed out, sure. Uh, you know, you can a- almost answer any of those questions different ways. And in fact, uh, you know, what, what the social scientists call the replicability test, yep. uh, uh, Myers-Briggs and many of these other assessments fail that test. You give the same test to the same person six nine months later they come out very differently so you know uh, there's a was what what it was designed for B do I have a valid assessment even if what uh, even if I'm using it for what it was designed for and then we come to the managerial issue you know most managers in my experience uh, are literally untrained in how to interpret the results they do get. From uh, the assessments, so you know, I, I think if you're going to use the, if you're going to swear by these assessments, that's a big, big mistake. Now, I think companies, some companies, swear by them in an attempt to avoid two other things. One is all the biases uh, that I talked about earlier about mm-hmm. simply doing unstructured. Interviews. Right. Thirdly, in certain businesses, you do have regulatory issues, so you can say we're not guilty of some other kind of bias because everybody had to do this test, see what see what the result is. But what its actual behavioral impact is, uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, is is not that uh, simply not that compelling.
1: Right. Yeah, I've always been uncomfortable with yeah tests that claim that. Hey, on the basis of this test, we can tell whether this person has, yeah, has what it takes to be good in sales. Yeah, and I don't know. I've just personally, have seen so many people across such a broad spectrum of personality types uh, succeed. They succeed well. That, yeah, just for me, it's like okay, it's an interesting data point, but not deterministic. No,
0: and, and and you know, the, but and that's relevant to you know the other. Uh, research in the book that you quite rightly pointed to. And again, this is like a century's worth of research. The, you know, the correlation between different um, personality attributes and selling effectiveness is, is is all over the place. You'll, you'll find studies that talk about, you know, uh, personality attribute a correlates very highly with sales success. You try to replicate the study and uh, it's very different. One of the reasons, again, is because sales is so context specific. Yep. Yep. Uh, and you know, the example I always point to is, you know, how many companies do you know that hired uh, the guy or gal who was an absolute superstar in sales <laughs> at Company A, and somehow they lose it. They they're not good at our company or the startup right? The early stage venture yeah. where the VCs say, boy, I can get you this, this star from Oracle and bring him in. Why is that the case? Those people didn't suddenly get stupid you know, when they left that company. It's not like they lost their individual capabilities, but so much of selling in particular depends on the context, depends on who else you're working with in your company. Uh, you know, your ability to develop those relationships, those people have to recreate all of that when they move from company A to company B. So, you know, the the, the assessments are only going to get you just so far in making that judgment as well.
1: Well, but I think this is a, that was you sort of grabbed the last point I wanted to bring up because this has been a a pet peeve of mine for a long time is, in the old days, it used to be called hiring a Rolodex, right? Yeah, um, is yeah, I almost never saw it work out. It just it doesn't translate. Yeah, I remember in the early days of of tech, uh, some of the companies like Apple, where I worked, and others were expanding, and they were hiring people from big companies to come in, and quite frankly, many of them struggled for the reasons you spoke about. Is that they didn't have the infrastructure around them that they're accustomed to. And it didn't mean they were bad people or they weren't good in other environments. But, yeah, you know, there are, I like, to say, horses for courses. And you talk about this as, as well as hiring the right person at the right time, this temporal dimension of hiring is, yeah, they're just not a fit for what you have. And this is hard for people to think. They think that just, you know, sheer talent will always win out, and it doesn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, at first I agree with everything you just said. The only thing I would add, the only caveat I would add, Andy, is again, let me get back to what I think is the fundamental issue uh, facing a lot of sales managers: making sure that because we understand how buying happens at our target accounts today, not yesterday, we understand the key sales tasks. I think you can occasionally buy the Rolodex if, in fact, what you're asking for is for that person simply to open the door. Mm. But then you've got to ask yourself the relative ROI question. Is is it worth the money I'm paying? Or are there other ways I can open this door besides hiring this person, whether it's better lead gen processes or a channel partner, etc.? Right. Uh, so, you know, occasionally the Rolodex uh, can, in fact, pay off but usually because the uh, what I'll call the buying company knows what it is they want and what it is they don't want and if we get with the person can actually sell for us as well hey that's a bonus that's been my yeah. experience
1: yeah and I didn't mean to say blanket that doesn't work but it's to your point it that's my experience substantiated what what you' had written in the book is it's you know stop and also, you know, hiring people from in from the end outside and giving them sort of you know key accounts and so on for those who are being brought up throughout the organization, that's a huge demotivator. Yeah, you know, I've mm-hmm. seen that as well in companies where, you know, they want to grow, they want to get into a certain type of accounts or so on and so forth, and it's always well, hey, let's go hire the the hired guns to do that, and you end up getting you know people that are. In process in their career, developing, moving up in terms of the type of accounts they can handle, and they'll leave.
0: Yeah, I I I think that's right. I think um, you know you 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 know whatever else you do, you got to grow your own, as we used to say about cannabis. Um, and <laughs> then I think you can add on to that if you if indeed you really know what it is you're um, you're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, good. Well, Frank, we've run out of time for this session. We're definitely going to have you back to talk about the rest of the book. Uh, People want to grab the book. I presume it's on Amazon and so on?
0: Yes, it is. and um, It's called Sales Management That Works, uh, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Uh, And um, You can get bulk discounts from the uh, publisher, Harvard Business Review Press as well, but it's also available on Amazon, Goodreads, Etc.
1: Etc. And if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn, I presume as well?
0: Yeah, I'm on uh, LinkedIn as well. That's correct.
1: Perfect. All right. Well, Frank, thank you so much. And yeah, we're going to do this again very shortly.
0: Andy, my thanks to you. Uh, And I mean that sincerely. Thank you very much. Okay, friends,
1: that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm grateful for your support of the show And I want to thank Frank Cespedes for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.